Morning. He always does that. He has like this, this you know, concert level finish. And then I get up and everybody's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I know. I'm going to start, I'm going to start coming up like juggling chainsaws and stuff. Say, try that. You know, no, they did a great job. Okay, happy Easter, everybody. Okay, today I thought it was probably a good enough reason to veer off of our series. What do you think? Um, and today's message is called The Perfect Plan. We're going to talk about something very important. Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> That's the answer every kid gives in Sunday school. Everything you ask him, Jesus, right? Okay, so, but listen, most people, most people have heard Easter and Resurrection sermons their whole life, right? Honestly, it makes it kind of tough to prepare one that's, that's, you know, that's original. And it's sad because you'll hear pastors talking to each other, uh, and they'll say like, oh man, it's Easter, what the heck, I gotta figure out something to preach on. <laughs> I'm going, I don't know, maybe the whole resurrection thing, I'm just gonna throw that out there. But it, it is tough because, you know, I almost feel like, and this is sad, but I almost feel like most believers are getting numb to it. They're getting numb to the story, uh, they're getting kind of, kind of numb to the holiday, if you will, and that, and, and that, that kind of bothers me because this is not just a powerful story uh, about sacrifice, it's a powerful story about the love of Christ. We should never be numb to this. So today I just, I want to take a look at this message just a little bit differently. Because see, the thing I'd like to see you start doing is the resurrection shouldn't be looked at as a one-time special event. Have you ever noticed that we kind of look at it like that? We look at the resurrection as a one-time significant special event and I, I would really like it if we didn't look at it like that because this was planned before the foundations of the world were ever laid that's how long ago this was planned this was instituted by jesus himself right and and here's the big one it's replicated every time someone believes in jesus we get to see the promise of the resurrection again we need to look at this different first corinthians fifteen twenty says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is what? The first of a great harvest of all who have died. So through this one-time act of love, many people would be resurrected. Many people would have the promise of a resurrection and defeat death and have eternal life. Okay, so this was an amazing, amazing act of love. And it was the same act of love that motivated Jesus to endure all the torture and all the ridicule and all the rejection. That's something he chose to do because he loved us. See, the price that Jesus paid for our freedom wasn't by chance. It was by choice. Before we were ever created, before the world was ever created, he chose to do this. And when you think about it, I mean, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection were all meticulously planned before the world was ever created. I mean, each painful event was planned out. And they were designed to show us that God loves us. The extreme, passionate love that God has for each one of us. So today we're going to look at every role Jesus played to purchase our eternal life. And we're going to look at three roles that he had to play uh, to make our eternal life a reality. So the first one is the suffering servant. Okay, now, we're going to be discussing Isaiah 53. And how many of you are familiar with that passage? <laughs> I hope you're just being sleepy. How many people have actually heard of... Isaiah 53, there we go, Christian people. Um, a lot of us are familiar with this because it's one of the greatest prophecies about this perfect plan of God 
to pay the sin debt of mankind. It's just one of these powerful prophecies. And this prophecy is actually kicked off in the context is set in chapter 52. So let's take a look at this. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. It says, Behold, my capital and my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, this is talking about Israel, so his appearance was marred, that means beaten, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on the account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. So he, in chapter 52, the end here, he's really setting the context for what's about to happen in Isaiah 53. And this is so powerful because when Isaiah said my servant, when he said my servant, he was referring to the Messiah or Jesus. Remember, Isaiah is just simply recording what God is telling him to say here. Right? And so Isaiah said that God's servant would prosper, he would be lifted up, and he would be exalted. And those, those predictions are going to come true, those will come true, but not before his servant suffered. Now, you know, as I read this, I thought, Does it, doesn't it always work that way, believers? Doesn't it always work that we are always burdened before we're blessed? Has anybody ever noticed that? Something always happens that we have to endure before God blesses us. We're either persecuted or faced with a challenge or faced with difficult times in our life. And it's when we go ahead and, and trust God to be God, when we surrender our will to his will, and we endure whatever is thrown at us, that's when God actually blesses us. And Jesus experienced the same thing. He had to endure suffering before he could be the Savior that we would, we would worship and think about for years and years to come. Now notice it said that he was marred. That means beaten. It says that, that he was marred, and it actually says that he was marred more than any man. Now, for those of you who don't understand what this means, when they would beat someone, it wasn't just slapping them around a little bit. I mean, they, when they used whips, they had pieces of bone and metal in the end of those whips, and it would literally tear tendons loose. It's not like he was just getting roughed up. This was a torturous beating, and so much so that the Bible tells us he couldn't be recognized. You couldn't just look at him. Those who knew him could not see him after they were done with him and identify who it was. That's the kind of beating that he took. And the scripture records it, but just on a small scale, like Mark 5.15 says, uh, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged or beaten, he handed him over to be cru crucified. We hear that, and we think, oh, he was beaten and handed over. No, I mean, he was beaten and handed over we're talking when they handed him over he was torn and bloody and bruised and unrecognizable luke chapter 22 verse 63 says now the men who were holding jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and were asking him saying prophesy who is the one who hit you so after he was beaten he was handed over to the soldiers and guess what he was beaten again and while he was being beaten, they were, they were trying to humiliate him. Right? See, one thing we have to remember is the Jews and Romans both were absolute masters and experts at, at torture. And not just torture, they wanted to torture you and humiliate you while they were doing it. I mean, it was very, very cruel what he had to endure there. And Jesus went through this like no other man would ever have to go through this. He was completely, completely at their mercy. Right? And, I mean... The mocking that went on. 
I mean, just imagine the mocking that went on when they were beating our Savior. When you hear all that, you think, why in Isaiah 52 did he say he would prosper? Because it's kind of strange. He says, my servant will be lifted on high. He'll be exalted. He'll prosper. And then it tells us how bad he was beaten. Did you notice that? And you're thinking, okay, where's the, where's the exaltation? Where is the blessing? Where is the being lifted up? Why did Isaiah write that? Because God was whispering in his ear. And see, God knew something that no one else knew. God knows who wins. God knows the end result of what Jesus was putting up with. And Philippians chapter 2 describes it perfectly. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or means something to take advantage of. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. A lot of people don't realize that just being born human was a huge step down. Huge step down. Verse 8. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he said, my servant will be exalted and then listed all of the torture and the pain he would endure, he did that because he was looking forward to the day when he would return and everyone would call him king. That's why he was saying that. So this kind of sets the stage for Isaiah chapter 53, which is going to be our main text. And in Isaiah 53, we're going to see God's plan unfold in great detail. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the what? arm of the Lord been revealed. We'll look at that in a minute. Verse 2, for he grew up before me like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So look at this. The first thing that Isaiah reminds us is that Jesus' suffering wasn't just physical. Now understand that from the moment he was born, someone was out for his life. From the moment he was born, they constantly questioned his authority, his legitimacy, and his identity. From the second he was born, he was completely the target of all the enemy, right? Constantly. They constantly made comments. As he's growing up, imagine what he endured. Look at this. Matthew 13, 55 says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So basically they were saying, wait a minute, you're making these claims. We know your parents. We know where you were born. We know who you are. You have no right to say you're the Savior. From the time he was born, he had to endure that. And here's why. Because this isn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. Right? He wasn't from a prominent family. And he wasn't regal in appearance. And this was not what the Jews hoped would come. They wanted something completely different than what Jesus brought to the table when they just saw him. See, they believed that when their Messiah came, that he would be noticed immediately, right? Like he would walk in the room, and you ever see those pictures where they have like glowing light behind their head? Anybody ever see those? When I was a kid, I was like, what happened, right? See, that was always shown to show divinity, but they thought that their king, when he, when he appeared, would be like that, would just stand out and everybody would go, whew, there he is, there he is. I mean, they wanted a king who met the most stringent qualifications, they wanted someone with a great pedigree. They wanted that primary. They wanted someone with good luck, someone with a, a king's physique. 
right? This is, the, this is the man they were hoping to see walk through the door, if you will. What did that look like? Well, I mean, check it. I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, but they wanted, they wanted the appearance. They wanted him to, to look like a king. And Jesus didn't have any of those things. I mean, he wasn't good looking. Despite all the surfer Jesus pictures you see of him with the white, long, flowing blonde hair, you know, the light blonde hair and the baby blue eyes. Anybody ever look at that and go, hmm, not very Jewish. Anybody see that? Okay, this is what he looked like. He wasn't a very good looking man. He didn't have a great pedigree, you know, and, and, and he didn't have this king's physique, right? He didn't fit all that. And you know, what he did have was a heart full of love and grace, but that's not enough, right? That's not enough for the Jews. That didn't matter, right? Even the town he was from didn't meet their expectations. Listen to this. John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to them, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. This is what people from Rome said he must feel like. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just said that as a dig to all my Rome City family, so don't, don't email me. But basically what he's saying is, really, Nazareth? I mean, so not only was he not good looking, per se, he didn't have a kingly appearance, he didn't have a great pedigree, but he was kind of from the ghetto. You know, so when, when they said, hey, we found him, you know where we found him? They're like, where? The ghetto. And they're like, what? Nazareth? I mean, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. You know, so every day of his life, he was questioned. Every day of his life, he was, he was doubted. They even wanted a wealthy Messiah. They didn't ask for much, did they? They wanted a wealthy Messiah, and Jesus once again let him down. Luke chapter 9, verse 58, and Jesus said to them, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So he literally was the polar opposite of everything they were hoping for. And because of that, they hated him and they made fun of him. Look at Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. They would call him a Samaritan. Now, um, you hear that and you think, well, big deal. But a Samaritan was, was half Jew and half Gentile and were hated by the Jews. For a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan was the worst insult you could possibly think of. They called him a Samaritan. They even said he was demon-possessed. John 8, 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Did, uh, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So, I mean, his whole life was filled with rejection, with hurt, with pain, right? And what probably hurt him the most was how quickly they rejected him, how quickly they sold him out before his death. Look at this, John 19, starting in verse 14. It says, Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to Jesus, uh, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, uh, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. What hypocrites. They hated Rome. They hated Caesar. They, behind closed doors, they were saying, he's not my king. <laughs> that stuff's still going on today, isn't it? He's not my brother. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're going. But, but when he says, should we crucify your king? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Verse 21, let's jump down. The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, because he was having the king of the Jews written on the cross. Right? 
but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Right? So, I mean, just imagine what it would feel like that the very people you came to bring freedom and eternal life to reject you and mock you and will take a criminal and save their life before they'd save yours, wouldn't even give you a chance. These are the people he was coming to die for. So the suffering servant, in all of his suffering, displayed the great love that God has for mankind. Yes, he was a suffering servant, but, but in that suffering, we got to see the great love of God because only someone who had the love of God driving them could put up with all that for people who would treat them the way the Jews treated him, the way the world treated him. So the first role he played was the suffering servant. And the next role he's going to play is the suffering substitute. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely what? Our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. See, the people who witnessed his torture and his crucifixion thought, well, that's justice. That's what they thought. I mean, because only guilty people get punished, right? So they looked at him and felt sorry for him. They were like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done all those things, you know. You kind of deserved it. But when you think about it, I mean, crucifixion was a punishment reserved for the worst of the worst. He'd done nothing worthy of crucifixion. Nothing. But they looked at him like he must be cursed of God for all this stuff to be happening to him. You know what? If he wasn't guilty, it wouldn't happen. That's how they looked at him. Deuteronomy 21, 23 tells us what a terrible, terrible way this was for him to die. His corpse shall not hang all night on a tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. So you do not file your land, which the Lord gives you as an inheritance. So being crucified was the worst death possible. It was considered a curse. And everyone saw that and thought, well, he must have it coming. And actually felt sorry for him, right? This was, this was the worst death possible. And what's ironic here is those who felt sorry for him, those who were stuck in religion and trying to make it there by works, they were the ones who were under a curse, not him. He was actually trying to set them free from a curse, and yet they looked at him as if he'd been cursed. Galatians 3.3 talks about this. Christ redeemed us from what? The curse. Was it slow to the screen, or were you, guys just, were you guys just saying, let's watch, let's let him hang for a little bit? Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So every painful moment, all the torture, all the pain, everything he endured, we deserved. This is what Isaiah is saying. Everything that he had to endure innocently we deserved and yet we were the ones that looked at him and thought poor guy must be cursed that's how the people looked at him but he was being punished for our sins this is what he was trying to get through to him he was being punished for our sins isaiah 53 5 but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging what we are healed he became the substitute for us. He suffered for us. He took our place and endured our punishment so that we could have eternal life. This is so, so powerful. And when you look at this, you think, why would he do that? 
Why wouldn't he find another way? And here's another great display of his love. Because there was a sin debt that had to be paid. And we just couldn't pay it. There was no way we were going to be able to pay it. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to what? To fall on him. See, only Jesus could pay that debt. So he endured all this, became our substitute, so that we could have eternal life. Colossians 2.14 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having what? Nailed it it to a cross. So the, the cross that the crowd looked at and saw as a curse was actually a blessing, and they didn't know it. Because that cross would bear all their sins in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything he was going to go through was for them, and that cross was a symbol of their freedom. Yet they saw it as a curse for him. So it's important to understand everything he did, he did for us. And the reason I'm digging into this is because we forget about all this come Easter, don't we? When Easter comes around, we're thinking about the resurrection, the stone is rolled away, You know, the risen Savior, we're forgetting about everything that that happened to put him there. And we're talking about pretty colors and new dresses and and chocolate bunnies, which I'm totally cool with. But we're talking about all those things, and, and we've forgotten what this day really means. This day really means that he took our place so that we could have eternal life. He faced death so that we wouldn't have to face death and defeated it so we wouldn't have to. That's how powerful it was, and, and what always blows me away is he could have stopped it at any time. That's the thing that when I first realized that kind of set me back on my heels. Because, let's be honest, who could endure this but God? I mean, it, if, if this was happening to you, if this were happening to you and you had the power to not only stop it, but immediately punish those who were doing it, would you? Oh, let's be, I've seen some of you in traffic, come on now. You get mad when there's not enough pickles on your Big Mac. What would you do if this was happening to you? At any time, he could have stopped this punishment. With a word, he could have stopped it. But he didn't. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he what? Did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. You know, one of the saddest things that I've ever seen. And when I think about the sheep led to the slaughter, it, it tears my heart out. If, if you've ever seen that, remember we've talked about how much sheep love their shepherd and how much shepherd loved the sheep. And they would follow him anywhere. And when it comes time for one of them to be killed, they would just walk happily by his side all the way up and lay their little head on the chop block and let him take it. And they would just do that because they loved him that much, just walk to their death. The difference is the sheep didn't know what was coming. Jesus did. The sheep were following along saying, anything my shepherd wants, I'll do it. You know, they weren't thinking, oh, I'm just going to happily walk off to my death. That's not what they were thinking. But they loved him so much they were willing to follow him anywhere he went. But Jesus, like those sheep, kept his mouth shut and innocently walked to the cross, knowing what was awaiting him, knowing that he was about to be tortured, He was about to be ridiculed, and he was about to be crucified. He kept his mouth shut. And he kept his mouth shut because if he didn't do that, we wouldn't have eternal life. 
and his accepting the responsibility for our sin, his willingness to die for what we have done, is what kept him quiet and what kept him enduring all that, walking to the cross. I just can't, I can't, I can't picture that. The only thing that really mattered to him was us. Nothing else mattered. First Peter 2.23 says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Whew. I mean, think about that. The whole time they were making accusations, the whole time they were making insults, he never answered any of it. He never fought back. He never argued. He just sat quietly because he had entrusted himself to the justice of God, and he knew that by doing that, he'd give us eternal life. This is so powerful because all those people who were pitying Jesus didn't realize that he was loving them. Isaiah 53, 8 says, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. This whole scenario of suffering, this whole scenario of torture, humiliation, he was just a substitute. We deserve that. We deserve that. I love how this describes that. Now, the, the third thing is he was the successful Savior. Look at Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, when you look at that whole section of Scripture, that's the reason Easter should never become just a one-time event that we become numb to. Because the price that was paid to make this a reality is beyond comprehension. The love that was displayed through what he endured for us is beyond comprehension. And it's so funny how our culture wants to trivialize everything and make it all about one day and forget it. You ever notice that? When it's time for Christmas, oh, it's Christmas time. Let's talk about Jesus. Rip it out of your yard. It's the 26th. You ever notice that? It's true, isn't it? And, and it's sad because the enemy says, listen, I can't deny it. It happened. It's a fact. People are going to celebrate it. The least I can do is make them numb to it and make them, you know, take it down to a one-time event and forget about it and don't think about Jesus again till the next Jesus holiday. Right? That's what the enemy does, and we fall for it. But when you read these passages, it reminds you just how important it is because Easter is a celebration of a successful Savior who loved us enough to take our place. And I think we forget about that. We forget that we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. We're celebrating the greatest victory ever won because today we're celebrating victory over death and only Jesus could win that victory. This was a victory so powerful that only the, the angels could even announce this victory. I love this. Luke 24, 1-5, but early Sunday morning the women 
went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. The men asked them, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. You know, I always think about those angels. You know, they're a totally different creation. Did you know that? Everybody always says, you know, I'm going to go to heaven and be an angel. No, you won't. Because it's a totally different creation. They were created completely different. We will never be them and they will never be us. Okay, so the thing that's difficult for them is how can humanity be so stupid as to not know who he is? That's what they were probably thinking. When God said, listen, I need you to go down and tell them he has risen, I can imagine the angels going, they have to know that. They have to know that he's your son. They have to know that he's their savior. I mean, did they miss the whole walking on water thing? God, we watched it from up here. You know, did they miss the whole healing thing? Did they miss the whole feeding the 5,000 thing? Did they miss him raising people from the dead and healing? Did they miss all that? Are they really dumb enough to think that that grave can hold him? Do they really think that the Romans are more powerful than him and can put an end to the plan that you put in motion before the world was ever created? Are they really going to go there hoping to find him? And all the way down there, they're probably thinking, what a waste of trip. We could be watching football. They're not going to be there. They are not going to go look in a grave for God. They're not going to do that. See, they don't understand. They never had to be redeemed. Right? They don't get that. So in their mind, everyone sees this as these loving angels in the tomb going, why do you look for the living among the dead? I see them down there going, oh, you owe me 10 bucks. They did come. (laughs) And the other one's looking at him going, why would you look for the Son of God in a grave? Why would you ever think that those men who he created could end the plan that was formed before the foundation of the world? Why would you think anything that happened on that cross would change the plan of God? Tell me you didn't really think he was going to be here. He's not here because... He's risen. Just like he said he would, he's risen. Now that may seem dark, but that's the Chris Mosley version. I'm just saying. I cannot imagine how they felt when they saw that we really thought man could defeat God. I can't imagine that. The resurrection was only a surprise to us. It was not a surprise to the angels. It was not a surprise to God, and it was not a surprise to Jesus, the Son of God. It was what God does, he wins. It's what he does. All right, so this, I mean, this victory made life something that death could not end. Everyone saw death as the end all, the period on the sentence. That's how people saw death, right? And the enemy wanted people to see death like that, the end of everything. But this proved that even death wasn't the end of God's perfect plan. This proved that. This proved that God's plan was executed perfectly and did exactly what it was supposed to do. That's what this proved. See, here's something a lot of people don't understand. During the time Jesus walked on earth, do you realize that about half the Jews didn't believe in heaven and didn't believe in a resurrection? Jews, half of them, about half of them didn't believe in a resurrection and didn't believe of heaven. You know what they thought? 
Serving God made you have a blessed life here on earth only, and the most you could hope for in being a faithful servant of God was to be blessed and exalted here on earth. But the heaven and resurrection thing, nah. About half the Jews thought that. About half of them. Right? So this is why the Apostle Paul said, let me remind you of something. Listen, if there's no resurrection and there's no heaven, there's also no joy. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 16. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. He said, listen, Paul said, how could you not believe that God is more powerful than death. How can you not believe that? He's saying, listen, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still in the grave. I don't think we understand the implications of that. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is still in the grave. And if he never came out of that grave, no one else will either. Right? No one else will ever come out of that grave. So all those who have died before you, all those believers who have died before you, they just cease to exist. They're just dirt again. This is what he was telling them. And if the Jews were right, then death is the one thing that's more powerful than God. Does anybody believe that? That would be saying that death is more powerful than God. But thankfully, what we celebrate today is the fact that Jesus is not in that grave. And it shouldn't surprise any of us. Because God has always been more powerful than everything, especially death. And since Jesus is not in those graves, all of our believing loved ones who have passed on, they're not in the grave either. You know, I know I've done hundreds and hundreds of funerals over the years. In the graveside service, I always keep it to five minutes or less because it's the most difficult part. Because in our minds, we visualize our loved ones being lowered into the ground. So I understand that that's difficult. But because of what we celebrate today, I always tell them, listen, there has never been a believer in a grave since the day Jesus rose from the dead. Never. You will never, you will close your eyes in death and open them in the arms of Jesus. You will never see a grave. You know what sees the grave? The body that housed us. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a new one. Aren't you? I mean, as fine of a model as this one has been. I'm ready for the trade-in. You know what I'm saying? No believer has ever, since the resurrection of Christ ever been in a grave. Since he defeated the death, hell, and the grave, we defeat death, hell, and the grave. And that means that God is what we thought he was, more powerful than the grave. That's what today means. Here's the way I like to think of it. So take a trip with me down my dark channels of my mind. I, I see Jesus going into the tomb, and there's this back door in that tomb where it's chained and locked, and, and, and it held people up to that point. And I see Jesus walking into death, hell, and the grave and just kicking that door off the hinges and saying, no more. No one else is going to be trapped by death. Death will have no power over them. They will close their eyes in life and open them in eternal life. But nothing will be held in this box, in this grave, in this tomb anymore. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Jesus may have been the first to defeat death, but he would not be the last. 
So that shouldn't be seen as a one-time event. When you say, God, you know, once a year we got to celebrate the resurrection. How about every time one of our loved ones dies and they were a believer? How about we celebrate the resurrection then? Because guess what? They are becoming partakers of that great benefit of love right then. That's when we should be celebrating the resurrection. How about those times when the doctor tells you you may only have a few months to live and you can say, no, I've got eternity to live. I just got a few months till I got to turn this back in. Because of the resurrection. It's not a one-time event. It's an event that continues to bless us every day. As long as people are living and dying, that's what the resurrection should be doing. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, I, I, I love this. It says, so you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, okay? Did you know that? When someone dies, why does everybody always say, well, I don't know why God took somebody why did God take my brother? Why did God take my mother? Did it say, who did it say brought death there? Did that say God? So you see, just as death came into the world through what? Amen. Women do not start with me. It was a general term. <laughs> Don't make me bring up the fruit. Anyway. Right? Death uh, came into the world through a man. That's Adam. Now, resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Jesus. Right? So when people tell me, why did God take, I say, God didn't take anybody. You can stop right there. God did not bring death. He brought the solution to death in the name of Jesus Christ and through the event of the death, burial, and the resurrection. We brought death. He brought the solution. We have got to remember that. I, it's so hard for me when I hear people say that. Why would God take, he didn't. Sin took him. Because that's what we brought to the table, and the wages of sin is death. We brought that to the table. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. I don't want us to make light of the perfect plan of God by putting the resurrection into a one-time event and celebrating it once a year. I think that is such a mockery to the plan of God. Every time someone dies, a believer, we should be celebrating the resurrection. The fact that no one lives forever should make us celebrate the resurrection. The fact that we get old, slow, and bald should make us celebrate the resurrection. Because we are dying more every day but believers are just dying to live again. That's how it works. That's why we should be celebrating it. So although I'm thankful for Easter, I'm thankful that we take one day where we celebrate that resurrection. Please don't let this be the only day. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always like to give an invitation. And what that means... <laughs> I know some of you may think, oh, great, he's going to sit up there and beg and plead till someone succumbs and walks up front. Uh, that's, that's not what we do. I just believe the word of God's powerful and it doesn't matter who speaks it. That's what I believe. And I know that the first time I realized God was talking to me, I didn't know my next step, but I did want somebody praying for me. So the reason I do this every week is because if someone is here who's not sure where they stand with Christ and your next step is a little unclear to you, I want to pray for you. Because he's calling out to you because he already loves you. He doesn't want you to earn it. 
He already loves you. He's already made a way for you to have eternal life, free of charge. He just needs you to make the next step, and that next step is faith. So if you're not sure where you stand, I want to pray for you. Just make eye contact with me. Put your head right back down. Bless those people. I'm not going to point you out, or just slip your hand up. Bless those people. And I'm going to pray for those people. Listen, I have been there. I know the confusion. I know what it's like to have five different religions telling me five different things while my heart's just telling me to come. I want to pray that God reconciles that in our mind. Bless those people. And if you're listening online, God knows your heart. If you're watching online. But for those of us who are believers, listen, we've got to be so careful not to make the amazing become just normal. It's amazing that someone like Jesus could love someone like us. It's amazing that he could offer us eternal life without us having to deserve it. That's amazing. It's amazing that he can love someone like me who doesn't always love him back. In my actions and my words, that's amazing. I'm just going to pray that we remember how amazing that is and that we celebrate that every day. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for everything you do. I, I thank you for today and what it means. And I thank you that at least there's one day that people will stop and remember all the great things you've done, the great price you've paid. But God, I, I don't want to, this to be a one-time event. I don't want people to only think about that sacrifice one day a year. I want them to think about it every day. I want it to change their lives, change the way they talk, change their actions. I want their words and their actions to show their gratitude for all you've done. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, someone listening online, watching online, I'm sure they're confused, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people telling them a lot of things. But your word tells us that he who believes has eternal life. God, if they can just trust that what your son did was enough to guarantee their eternal life on the authority of your word, we can guarantee they'll have it. If they make that decision today, I pray that they reach out to us. And God, for those... For those of us who already know you, it's so easy to just come to church and go home and go about our lives and forget about how amazing you are and how many amazing things you can do through us. Let us be affected by the resurrection. Let us be affected by the great sacrifice you made for us. Let it be on our mind every day. Let it drive us to live a life that draws others to you. Just please don't let it become a one-time event once a year. We thank you for everything you do. We pray that you would go with us to our homes and our safe places. Keep us safe. Let us live what we profess, God. Let people hear us speak and hear your voice. Let them see our actions and see you moving. Because we want to enlarge the borders of that kingdom. And God, if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise and honor you're so worthy of. We just thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name.